0: The episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. Please reach out.
1: Her sister, they were put through military training, uh, weapons training. I was a terrible marksman. I'm so glad I was a terrible marksman. They they train assassins. I know that's it. Sounds like it's coming out of a movie, but I can explain. I can explain how you do that. I can
2: mm-hmm.
1: believe me. If you take a young child and four or five times a year, you strap that child in a chair and torture them. You're going to get that child to do pretty much what, what you want.
2: You have used a few words that are new to us and our listeners, um, and I'm going to let you deal with the words in order you want to, but you've talked about contractors, and you've talked about trigger words, yes. and you've talked about handlers, and I know from your perspective, those have different meanings than they would to me. So could you explain what contractors and handlers are?
1: So when I say it's it's just the way they set up these programs, um, they they can be highly compartmentalized. You don't want one person, you know, working for you to know the whole scope of what's happening. And that's documented. We we know that from the MKUltra documents. They had a lot of civilians that they would contract, just regular old academics. Working in institutions, and they would give them one very small segment of of a procedure to to do experiments with. So, and that wouldn't hurt anybody. They would just be you could you could carry that out and even publish it. But it would be some piece of another procedure that then they would go and use in the torture lab. So, by contractor, I mean a, a lot of the people carrying out this work. We're just that. They, they could be short-term contractors as opposed to personnel who were higher up following individual subjects, you know, through various facilities and watching the progress, like, like my person at uh, NASA. Of course, there are people higher than that. So I hope that gets to what I mean by contractor.
2: Yeah. I think they're being paid. They have like a, they have like a contract with government, Right. Right. They're being hired by the government to do this work. Yes, under, uh, under the auspices of benefiting our country.
1: Yes, this okay. is when this you know was going on. It was the Cold War, and we were trying to well, that was the excuse given anyway. You know, we were trying to outdo Russia. Russia had its own programs like this, as far as I know. I mean, I've read some documents that that were released. Mm-hmm. Okay, handlers. What happens in the labs with the torture, it's conditioning. It's like classical conditioning, reward and punishment, only the punishment is torture. But the torture also produces fear and other, you know, fight or flight responses to a level where you dissociate. And then you get trained or conditioned even further after you're already in that state, in, in a dissociated state.
2: Okay, so a handler could be like the. I'm going to use the word babysitter, but they're like the hands-on. They take you where you need to go. And no, and, I, I oh.
1: was yeah, I was kind of getting there. So okay. when when they're conditioning you, they associate a trigger cue. It it can be a, a noise, a set of words. It can be a visual symbol. But when you encounter that in your normative life, so you you're say you're out in, in normative life and you encounter that, you're mentally you're going to obey and you're going to switch who, whoever's in control of the body mm-hmm. and then follow the order, whatever order is implicit in that. Okay. So that's what a handler does. A handler sort of keeps track of you. A handler doesn't even have to live in the same city. I've had some Handlers that live in uh, other states, and what they do is, at this point with me now, because I'm not operational, I any mean, they can't use me anymore. But they want to make sure that I don't break down too much of my conditioning and spill the beans like I am, right right now. They, they don't want that. So I'll get phone calls, I'll get messages over the computer that have little phrases in them, or maybe they have a sound from a handler and. I've had I've had a couple of handlers that just they sound like they're reading from a script. Like there's a file somewhere and the handler's just reading the words off of the script. You guys remember when caller ID first came out? Sure. I got a call and it and I looked at caller ID and it said Los
2: Alamos
1: <laughs> National
2: Labs. It said where?
1: Los Alamos National Labs okay (laughs) yeah so you know they're not perfect they mess up they leave evidence around my ex partner that I was with for 17 years he sometimes he would pick up the phone and he'd just hear a tone like a Mm -hmm. computer generated tone Mm -hmm. that's what a handler does a handler makes sure that you're you're still obeying you're still you haven't broken your conditioning if you go into to therapy you're not breaking too much of the dissociation and they also can trigger you to do operations but like i said i'm i'm not operational anymore
2: which means that you're not susceptible to the trigger words or that you have um you have worked through the the um the alter personalities so that you're what is the word when you're well back together again. I forget what it is. Integrated? Yes, no, I, yes,
1: yes. I'm I'm not integrated. What I mean by operational is I'm not going to be sent out on some sort of operation. I'm not going to be sent to some politician to mm. seduce him so that they mm. can blackmail him. I'm, I'm not going to be sent on a courier mission. So mm. my system is too, it's not reliable anymore. I've done enough work in therapy so that it's, my system is just not reliable anymore. They can't, they can't Um, risk it because I would remember too much.
2: uh When did it, when did the childhood experimentation stop? How old were you?
1: 14 or 15. Although I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure working through, I'm not quite finished working through that time in my life because I was spending more and more time with my father and it's It's one thing when there's a strange guy in a lab coat that's hurting you. It's another thing when it's your father mm-hmm. so it's it's been um it's taken longer to get to those memories i recently I've been working on a series of memories from when I was fourteen, and I was taken to Chicago and they were using a meat plant packing plant, and they had a virtual assembly line of subjects girls my age um going on in that plant and they used they used the animal carcasses um to torture us and yeah it was it's um it was sickening so i'm still working on that but they do get to a point where Okay, your system is pretty well set. And this usually happens in t- in early to mid-teens, and they do then they start with conditioning you for security. So if, if for some reason your system starts to break down and the memories of the lab um, start leaking into normative or day-to-day life, like when you have to go to school, then there's a little security. There's some security conditioning where you report you report on yourself so they they build in that kind of conditioning around that age and then and
2: then and then you're ready to be used. so what happened when you were about fourteen and you're i mean did your family move again or did you stay in the normative world as you call it? So we
1: left Birmingham we moved back to Detroit in january of seventy nine and we were there only for like a year. My my father was traveling all over the world. He was going to China and Mexico. And he spent almost a year working in Dusseldorf, Germany. And then he was back home again. He was going to be sent to um, Cairo, to Egypt. So we, after we moved to Detroit and we were there about nine months, then, oh, we're going to move to Cairo. And that went on for a few months. And then no, and we ended up moving to Chicago. So I I graduated high school in Chicago.
0: When when your abuse was happening in Detroit, uh, when you were really young, was that always at the pediatrician's office?
1: No, there there were other there was that hospital room as well. There were also actual real hospital rooms. So I have a couple of memories when I was in a hospital room.
0: Okay, so they were using just a normal hospitals Facility at the time yeah, to do yeah. that.
1: Yep, and I, I remember the exterior of the hospital and I've done that Google, you know, Google Street View. Um, there's a hospital that underwent an extreme renovation. I think that's it, but I, I don't know for sure. So I don't want to say the hospital's name. I'd have to go back to Detroit and drive around and look, I don't have that in me right
0: now. Right. No, sure. Well, you were really young then, right? So yeah. that'd be difficult.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: When you when you were moved to Alabama, did all of the abuse then happen in the NASA's government building?
1: No, there were different facilities. When I was an adolescent, I got taken to a doctor at Sanford University. There's a Sanford University, or is it Sanford with an N? Because I fell pregnant. And that's another horror story that I don't want to overwhelm your audience with. But you know, there, there were the NASA facilities, um, the annex, and then the main facilities, and then a doctor at Sanford. But as far as the labs, that I think that was it in uh, around Alabama. But there was always the private stuff. So like the family stuff, that the private stuff is going on too. But it changed because we didn't have you know, extended family in Birmingham. Uh-huh. So my father hooked up with some pretty unpleasant people and occasionally, it didn't happen nearly as often, but occasionally, you know, on holidays, we would uh-huh. go to a house. I remember what the house was like. You know, there would be one of those party, party, quasi-religious thing where, you know, orgiastic drug fields where uh-huh. kids were raped and everyone was doing everything to everybody
0: Lynn, by the time you moved to Alabama would you say that you were pretty well conditioned
1: no they just I'd had the basics done but I always been a fighter I did everything I could to fight Uh I am I have a very strong part of me that never let go of the idea that all of this was wrong. Mm -hmm. They tried to torture that out of me. They actually had a little brainwave signature for it. And I have a name for that part of me. And I I still have that part of me. And Mm -hmm. they didn't get that. No, I wasn't fully conditioned yet. I was highly dissociative. When I went to school, I was very socially awkward. I was not assertive. I had trouble moving my body because I had a lot of somatic pain, but I never said anything about it. I still have a lot of somatic pain. And I knew, I, I, you know, I felt like an alien compared to the other kids. I would watch the other kids and you know how kids do when they scream and they run around and they flap their arms and they're just being mm-hmm. silly. I would stare at them and go, how can they do that? Where did mm-hmm. they get the idea to move their arm like that? Mm-hmm. Because I was at a point where I felt like if I didn't have permission, I couldn't move my hands a certain way or I couldn't Mm -hmm. certainly couldn't raise my voice. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah, but no, they, they weren't finished with me yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you always remember what was going on or was there a certain point into this when you stopped remembering?
1: I don't remember remembering. I remember when I was, A tiny kid I had nightmares. I had a recurring nightmare that actually it it never went away throughout my whole childhood, but it was really, really frequent when I was a young kid and I acted out. I would do weird stuff. I mean I talk about scaring your neighbors again. There were other kids in the neighborhood and I would do weird stuff around them. I don't remember remembering about the labs. I just remember the feelings. Right, the terror and mm-hmm. that I there were creepy men in my life that did creepy things to me. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't I knew I wasn't allowed to remember in the daylight world, in the normative world. So I did I obeyed. I obeyed that rule. But there were some incidences of abuse that I never forgot. And that's because it, it, you know it wasn't my extended family or my parents. It didn't happen in the lab. It um, happened between some boys. That were friends of my brothers and my brother. It happened when I was eight years old, and I that I never forgot. So by the time I went to college, I knew I was a sexual abuse survivor. So I went to therapy, and yeah, I just I thought, well, spend a few years in therapy, I'll recover from those incidences, and I'll go on with my life. And uh, that just never really happened.
2: Can you talk to us about what your adult life was like? And um I also wanted to ask you were your parents part of the the mind control so that like did they use trigger words and stuff with you as you got older to keep you conditioned? Yes.
1: Yeah, my father was part of this whole thing. In fact, okay. my my father helped traffic children. I have memories of being with him in the car and we had kids in the car taking them to, I won't, I won't go into that, but my mother, when my mother was taking me, she would be given a script of words um, to say to me, to keep me conditioned. And my father, I'm sorry about the siren. Can you hear that? That's okay. My father, he knew about my system. And he knew how to access, especially my team of alters that were trained for rape. And my father took advantage of that all the time. So,
2: yeah. You said you went on operations with him. Do you mean CIA operations? Well, yeah, the trafficking of the children. Okay. So,
1: yeah, they, um, yeah, I went with them. That was in the 70s. It was like a Friday before Christmas, and mm-hmm. there was going to be a huge ceremony. I think it was in northwest Georgia, and a lot of their politicians, I just heard this. It was like a rumor. I didn't witness. I didn't see anyone I recognized, you know, mm-hmm. but I went with them, and we had we had two children with us, and they did not come back. us. Mm.
0: Was your dad an official employee of the CIA?
1: No, I I, I don't think so. There's no there's no way to know because you know what they say. They they will not confirm or deny.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So what has your adult life been like as you I mean, I'm assuming you're not close to anybody in your in your biological family. Is that no, correct?
1: That's correct. I, I cut off contact in my mid twenties, mid to late twenties. Mm-hmm. My adult life has been up and down. I so I did manage to go off to college. And so I was functional enough to get through college. And when I was there, <laughs> I did women's studies. <laughs> and it kind of changed my whole world. And then of course I, you know, I knew I was a, an abuse survivor from the memories I didn't dissociate. So I worked on that and then I kind of got political with it. And I started to become a part of the sexual child sexual abuse survivor movement. And I used my artwork um, to do shows about child sexual abuse and help educate. And so I got plugged into that whole community. In fact, I think I have an email to SNAP from the
2: 1990s. Really?
1: <laughs> when they first formed, yeah, I talked to the guy. I emailed the guy briefly mm-hmm. who, who formed SNAP. I'd have to look on my floppy disk to find Yeah, so I, I got, so I was always already telling you guys a little bit about this, but um, I got into this huge art show in Seattle. I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I was with my partner. And we came out for the show, and it was hugely successful. It was about child sexual abuse, and we decided we were going to move here because the show got offers to um, travel. We got offers to travel that show across the country and internationally. It was a really powerful show. We got on the news. We got on the radio. We got in the newspaper. <laughs> it was really, really powerful. Um, so we moved to Seattle from Atlanta in 91, and, um, and I started working on the show. But then in a couple of years, um, that whole false memory campaign hit and our offers dried up and the show the show went away my symptoms just kept getting worse and were somatic symptoms so body symptoms and I was having I wouldn't call them flashbacks they were more like sort of full body memories and uh, my state just went downhill for most of my 30s I didn't work at all I couldn't work my symptoms were just too intense, and and I also couldn't afford, well, people who know how to treat people like me are few and far between, and I I, I had good therapists, but they, you know, I could only get so far with them, and um, I just muddled through. I, I didn't paint a whole lot, but I painted some, and then things really changed. I sort of gradually got better and better. I got. I think I got diagnosed with DID in ninety. With I'm sorry. With what? Yeah, DID dissociative identity. Like, yeah, I got diagnosed uh-huh. in ninety three, I think, or ninety four. And I just sort of gradually got got better, and then, and then I started seeing my therapist I see now, and he's been helping people like me for thirty years, and and um, that's really important. To have somebody who can, who understands that this is real, um, That that's first and foremost. And then he's a really good trauma therapist. And so, yeah. And I started getting better. And I left my partner in 2004 and ended up where I am now in this artist community. And then I started to see if I could do things, like normal people, you know. I started to see if I could be part of an arts organization and sit on a board meeting. Sit in on a board meeting.
2: Tell, and be us, functional. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about Lynn, tell us about your art, what kind of art you do, and tell us about the community where you live. Because you mentioned earlier that there was something in you that wouldn't let you forget that this was wrong. And yeah. it, it feels to me, I mean I I can't empathize. I have compassion, but it almost feels like That's what saved you, and that there are probably many, many people like you who were not as fortunate and are still living in, you know, some other parallel universe that doesn't make any sense. But can you tell us about your art and how you developed it? Well,
1: yeah, even as a small kid, I showed, you know, some ability to draw. So I was. I drew a lot, and in high school, I I won a couple of awards. So it was always kind of in the back of my head that, well, maybe I'll be an artist, even though I was discouraged from it. I was just I was encouraged to get a real job, you know. <laughs> what people usually say to artists. So yeah, I, I I always drew and painted, but what came out, uh, um, in what I would make. It always reflected my dissociation. So it was always figures, um, multiple figures sort of blending and twisted on top of each other and kind of horrific imagery. So I was never going to have a big successful art career like I wanted because yeah. there aren't a lot of people who want to hang, you know, really horrific stuff over their couch. Um, <laughs> But I got into the art community, and I've done a lot of other things. I've, I've cur- I ran a couple of small galleries for a number of years. I coordinated um, studio rentals. I did community, um, community-wide art projects. I started an arts festival a couple of years ago. <laughs> and um, it only ran for two years, but we, we blocked off the sidewalk. Um, in downtown, I mean, the, we blocked a uh, street in downtown Seattle. And so that was, that was a lot of fun. But I got overwhelmed. Uh, it was too much. I overextended myself. And during the same time, I'm still trying to go to therapy and work on torture memories. So yeah, it was too much. And I have now stepped, I haven't done any arts activities now in a, in a few years. All, all I do now is I work and I go and, and
2: recover from those torture memories and uh-huh. break down my conditioning. Is there someplace online that we can look at your artwork?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I actually have two sites. Um, my, my main art site is lynnshermer.com. And then I have a site that I'm going to be updating because <laughs> it hasn't been updated in 10 years. And it's well overdue. And that's lynsart.net. And that has more of my, you know, this the the awful side of my life. It has more of that, but it has uh-huh. some of my journal drawings and explanations about how all this stuff works.
0: Lynn, I'm actually looking on your site right now The Lynn, you pronounce your last name as Shermer. Yes. So LynnShermer.com. Yes. And your artwork is so amazing. Like I'm looking at your drawings right now, and they just kind of blow my mind away. Kind of gives you an inside look of maybe what you've been through. Some of it is very—I don't—I don't—I don't even know the vocabulary to describe it.
1: Thanks, Shane. Yeah, it's—it's—it's it's, it's how I've been able to tell because you know there aren't there are very few people who can listen to this, and so my art speaks for me and it's spoken for me for 30 years.
0: I can definitely wow. see that.
2: Lynn, do you think this kind of conditioning with children is still going on? Yes. What would lead you to think that?
1: Because we still have people where it didn't, you know, there was some flaw in the work so it doesn't work as well as it should and they remember. And these are young people still coming forward today, people in their teens and 20s.
0: Uh-huh. When, when did you start remembering, and, and I'm sorry if you've already touched on this, but I didn't quite catch that. When did you start remembering the specific uh, MK Ultra type of abuse that happened?
1: That's, that's really hard to pinpoint because I had the symptoms. I had flashbacks and ab reactions and somatic symptoms long before I was able, I felt safe enough to process one of the memories. It was many years of building up, but I would say it was around, it would be the late 90s or
2: 2000s. And did you say that you have been punished for talking about this? Oh, yeah. Can you explain to us what you mean? Yeah. So I, I was part of an art show
1: a few years ago about the stigma the stigma of mental illness. And my role in that art show was to say, I don't have a mental illness. Horrible things happen to me. I have natural coping responses. And part of the show, it traveled. It traveled around Seattle a little bit. And we would do artist talks um, to the public. And it traveled to Seattle City Hall. And I gave a talk there about my history. Afterwards, someone that, I thought was a friend, started behaving rather strangely, and I don't want to go into the details. But I ended up being abducted. I was on my way home, and I was a perpetrator got in the car with me and hurt me, and that was arranged by a friend, that a former friend that I thought was a friend. So I, this was, um, yeah, 2015. Oh my. Yeah, so I stopped. I was publishing articles on my other website, Born Press, um, up until that point. And I just kind of stepped back. And then I had to reassess a lot of people in my life. That's another thing is, you know, you know that feeling when you meet someone and you feel like, oh, I totally get you. It's just sort of an intuitive Mm -hmm. kind of feeling. Or I've known you my whole life. It feels like I've known you my whole life. And then you kind of fall into friendship. I cannot trust that feeling. I can't trust it. It oh gets my. In trouble. So I had a few friends that turned out to be not safe. Wow. Oh. So I had to cut those friends out of my life. And then the following year I, I got a a death threat, but that was from a known handler. I mean Are family. these
2: yeah, are these people from your past or are these people who are like younger versions of that?
1: Younger versions and people that I've met over the last, I don't know, five or six years, eight years maybe.
2: Then, what can we do to help protect you from any kind of backlash for being so courageous?
1: I i have a few things in place. Um, have you ever heard of a dead man's letter? <laughs> yeah, so i I have that, and there is a thought that, you know, speaking out is a, is a, can be a kind of protection. You know, if something happens after you speak out, it makes it a little bit more suspicious. Right. I don't know what you guys can do. I think the most important thing here is that the more people who are open to learning about these programs Mm -hmm. and accept, and the biggest hurdle is emotional because you have to think oh my god my my tax money has been going towards this my right. you know, what is my government doing,
2: mm-hmm. and a
1: lot of people can't handle that. it's just too much
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but the more people who can get close to accepting that, then we might have a chance of actually forcing some sort of action against it
2: mm-hmm. Is there any action we can take as as advocates for? For you or for others who are in your situation?
1: I think you're doing it, Gemma. You and Shane are doing it right now. I mean this is starting, you know, it's the ground level. We mm-hmm. can't we can't, you know, demand hearings, you know, for these are human rights abuses, long seventy years of human rights abuses. Sure. We can't demand hearings on that unless we have enough people to make the demand. So mm-hmm. as long as Survivors like me are ridiculed and disbelieved, then these crimes
2: continue, <clears throat> which is Lynn, all part of the plan, right? To make yes. you not credible. Yep.
0: Linda, last question that I had that I wanted to ask you you mentioned that you've seen the Keepers. When you watched it and you learned about the abuse that had been going on there, and combining that with your knowledge about the MK ultra program and, and what type of abuse they were doing, in your mind, do you think that those two events could be related?
1: Yes. Yeah. So what I thought, after I had time to calm down and, you know, get some clarity and really think about it, my thought was, you know, there can be there can be rumors among networks of people. And my thought was, Maskell was not running, maybe not an official operation you know where he was actually contracted he was running like a kind of side project and he and it was whoever his contact was to run that side side project they were sloppy (laughs) right they were were sloppy and Maskell was sloppy I mean burying papers in a graveyard that's Mm -hmm. sloppy and that's not something the people that worked on me when I was a kid that's not something they ever would have Done. So it makes me think that there's a tangential connection, perhaps through uh Richter, or maybe through some colleague of Maskell's who kind of whispered and said, Hey, have you heard what they're doing over there? Let's try this. Mm
2: -hmm. Or,
1: you know, or something like that. It's it's
2: And there was one. He was a he was a psychiatrist or a psychometrist who was who would travel around the Catholic high schools and administer psychological tests. And Maskell was not authorized to be giving these personality tests, but this other guy was. So um, I I do think you're right with that, Lynn. I think you're really perceptive and based on your own experience, it makes a lot of sense because we know that Maskell tried to get grants at Hopkins and was turned down. I think he tried very hard to be a, a contractor.
1: Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. There there's another thing and we know that Hopkins and Walter Reed they're deep in this stuff. I and I just I wanted to offer this. There's a survivor same she went through what I went through who had documentary evidence and her name is Karen Coleman Wiltshire. She passed away quite a long time ago now back in the 90s. Um but she had a transport order from Johns Hopkins to Walter Reed to be experimented on at Walter Reed so and that was in 1965.
2: Yeah it's pretty rare for us to have any sort of
1: documentation like that for a survivor.
2: Yeah is it and you said her name was Karen Thomas Wilcher? Karen Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. Is there documentation online that would be available to read if anybody wanted to do that? You know,
1: I don't know if there's anything up about Karen right now. I have that document somewhere in one of my old computers. (laughs) I have that. So if anyone wants it, I can try to dig it out.
2: Lynn, we want to give you the opportunity to say anything at all that you would like to say to our listeners or about yourself or your life. So the stage is yours.
1: I think if I miss something in my retellings... It's, spe- you know, the specifics of how the conditioning works, Psych- mm-hmm. psychologically. Mm-hmm. I kind of miss that. Um, but there are places you can read about it. So, you know, I just want people to know, and I'm going to lose it again. That's okay. <laughs> you know, I was taken as a three-year-old kid and tortured.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, <laughs> and it was funded by the, by tax money. And I've been tortured and followed my whole life. And I didn't ask for any of that. And I'd really like it if more people started paying attention.
2: Uh And I
1: I know it's hard to pay attention because a lot of us sound quite, you know, it sounds out there. And a lot of us don't come across as very credible because can you imagine how credible you would sound after being tortured? Throughout your childhood and right. trafficked and rape, you're not gonna mm-hmm. you know, that's another way it stays stuck.
2: What would you recommend if someone listening to you thinks that this happened to them? What what would you recommend that they do about it? You have to you have to go to therapy. Well, you you you've got to have you
1: have to have some sort of safe environment, a way to have a safe relationship with someone where you can learn to trust and, and work through the trauma, but it's, it's better to work with someone who already knows about this stuff. Just so when you're saying, Oh, you know, I remember this room and this other thing, this weird thing in the corner and they don't look at you like you're just, you know, mm-hmm. they've heard it before. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's a number one. There's no like, you you've gotta break the conditioning down because um, you won't be safe until you break that conditioning.
2: And how would they find the right kind of therapist? It sounds like it's a, it's a real specialized kind of treatment. It is, and it's
1: not easy to find people. The ISS TV, I guess you could contact them. And what is that? It's the international, something for dissociative and, and traumatic stress disorders.
2: <laughs> I'll the have to look at it. Yeah, we'll find it, right, Shane? We'll find it. <laughs>
0: okay. One question, and I'll probably cut this out. I was just nib-nosing around on your website, and I came across a link that you had put for, and I'm going to quote it, SI and H experiment on two children. Yes. That document that I'm looking at is crazy to read, and I already sent it over to you, Gemma, so when we finish this, you can read it. Okay. I've been skimming through it. What am I looking at? Like, where was this document from?
1: So that's from the uh, release of the MK Ultra files in um, subsequent to the hearings in 1977.
0: Wow, so the CIA actually released this document? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I don't know why I've not come across this. It's nuts, Gemma, when you read it, uh-huh. because it talks about similar to what Lynn has been explaining.
2: Right. That
0: they're they're basically observing how they are uh, creating these children to dissociate.
2: Uh-huh. It's
0: crazy, and it looks like okay. an official old document. This one is from
2: 1951. Yep. Dr. Ross. Yeah, Dr. Ross, Colin Ross told us that. Um, when the CIA tried to clean everything up, that they actually somehow overlooked a whole box of files, actually, now have been released. Maybe it came from there.
0: The International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation is a nonprofit organization interested in advancing the scientific understanding of trauma based disorders. The document we discussed at the end of this episode, we will go into further detail next week.